RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 354, The Muse. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek so we can talk to each other and to you about the morals, meanings, messages, and deep feelings contained within. This week, The Muse, an episode that inspired John and myself to write pages upon pages of copious notes in order to write and produce an episode that will catapult us into podcasting immortality. But before we get into this episode, please have your finest antique fountain pen and a stack of vellum ready so you can write down how you can get in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, for a moment of true inspiration, here is my muse. John Champion with this week's trivia. Well, thank you for that, Norman. Trivia for this week's episode, The Muse. We have a story by Renee Echeverria and Majel Barrett Roddenberry. That's right. The first lady of Star Trek herself pitched a story to Ira Stephen Bear, which would eventually become what we see here today. However, this story had a rather difficult gestation, if you'll forgive me. The pitch turned into a kind of romantic comedy with four couples being front and center, and then they just didn't really go anywhere. At least that's where we meet up with the script for this episode, credited to Renee Echeverria, but the whole staff was trying to break the plot and figure out where everything and everyone would end up. Enter Ronald D. Moore, who had in mind doing something around Jake. Would it be a relationship story to fit the theme, or maybe now in this case, something to do with his writing, since after all, we explored more of that with The Visitor. So Ron cooked up the plot line about Jake and his muse, and that was humming along so well, it was decided to make that the A plot and relegate Voxana to the B plot. The episode is directed by David Livingston, journeyman Trek director and producer. David is back for this one. We most recently talked about him in the director's chair for Sons of Moog. Now, one weird abandoned concept for this episode was a wedding box 
that Renee had thought up as a contrivance to get Odo and Loaxana together. The gimmick was that they had to stay in this literal box for 16 hours straight, and it would be in here that Odo would soften up toward Loaxana. The scene shop even got so far as building most of it when Ira and Renee decided, you know what, we just need to have him say it during the ceremony. So that prop goes unseen here, or anywhere for that matter. Now on to our guest stars. Well, we say welcome back to Major Barrett Rodmary as Loaxana. This is an important episode to remember for the milestone that it is Majel's last on-screen Star Trek role. Yes, we do hear her voice as the computer many more times, of course, but this is the last time that she embodies a character. Also, a welcome back to Michael and Sarah, playing a new character, Jael. You can't forget Michael, who we saw recently as the Klingon Kang in Blood Oath, and that was, of course, reprising his role from TOS's The Day of the Dove. He will be back for one more track when we catch him again on Voyager. And hey, we have John Paul Lona. Who? Well, he's kind of a sci-fi professional, an artist and designer, having contributed his work to Star Trek graphic novels, among other places. But he is here as a background alien, a non-speaking role. And there are a lot of those on DS9, so why bring him up? Well, he's there because in 1995, the Playmates Toy Company, which had the Star Trek license, had a design an alien contest, and the winner would have their design made into a creature that they would play in an episode of DS9. John submitted no fewer than five entries with a color sketch and a bio for each one. Runep, the Ricinian, was chosen, and you can spot him pretty easily if you look for the very creative exoskeleton skull and the dark gray textured costume. Uh, he enters actually right after Anaya does in the very first scene. Now, incidentally, in his winning entry, John had only designed the makeup, which Michael Westmore then executed. But while on the lot, costumer Bob Blackman encouraged him to design the costume too. And that's what we see on screen. Incidentally, the costuming for this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award. And finally, we meet the title character, the muse herself, Onaya, played by Meg Foster. Uh, now, when Renee was writing the script, he had Meg in mind for the role. She came in to read, she nailed it, and everyone was pleased to have her there. Then and now, she was a well-known actor with a lot of genre credits to her name, and her signature, of course, is her very light blue eyes. Her resume is very extensive, and I'll just name a few here that stood out to me. Masters of the Universe, Miami Vice, Leviathan, The Six Million Dollar Man. She turns up in a lot of horror movies and has worked under Rob Zombie's direction more than once. She was even Cagney in the TV series Cagney and Lacey, well... She was the second Cagney after Loretta Swit played the role in the pilot episode. Meg had the role for one season, then the show was canceled, but when it came back, she was replaced with Sharon Glass. Of all those great roles, though, she might be most recognizable to 80s sci-fi fans for playing Holly in John Carpenter's iconic 1987 film, They Live. Just to throw a little extra trivia your way, John. 
Yes, please. About Meg. So she actually, in Masters of the Universe, co-starred with two other famous Star Trek alumni, one of which being Anthony DeLongis, who's yeah. most famous for in Voyager, first Maj Kulla of the Kazon, and um, Frank Robbie Langella. Duncan. Frank Langella, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Robbie. Yeah. And I mean, Robbie yeah. Duncan McNeil, who played Kevin in Masters of the Universe, uh, opposite of Courtney Cox. Uh, who is also known as Nick Lacarno and Tom Paris. I'm guessing this muse isn't anything like the muses in the movie Xanadu. Let's recap just to be sure. Prologue. Just a normal day on DS9. There's Jake Sisko at his usual hangout spot in the promenade, watching people disembark from a shuttle while he takes character notes for an as-yet-unwritten story. There's a bullion, a criminal, and a mysterious woman. Meanwhile, Odo enters his office only to find a distraught Luaxana Troy. She's pregnant. Act 1. Since we last saw Luaxana, she married a Tavnian fellow named Jael. It was all going along just great until right after the wedding when he became a bit more controlling— Tavnian tradition dictates that girls are raised by women and boys are raised by men, which means Jael is essentially planning to take his baby boy away from Loaxana as soon as he's born. He won't change his mind, and she won't stand for it. So here's Odo, trying to be a friend. He offers to help find a transport to get Loaxana back to Beta Zed, but that's where Jael will look. She needs help here. Now. Remember that mysterious woman Jake saw arriving at the station? She's Onaya, and she introduces herself to Jake when she notices he's writing. She kind of has a thing for artists. In fact, she knew a brilliant, famous, but short-lived Cardassian architect who definitely interests young Jake. She says she knows how to get the best out of artists, knowing the right techniques for creativity, and she invites Jake to her quarters later. Act two. First, Jake has to bow out of a trip to Bajor with his dad. Of course, he says he wants to stay home and write, failing to mention the intriguing alien woman. But Ben goes off without him, leaving the boy to his own devices. In Quark's bar, Loaxana is draining every bit of goodwill out of Kira and Dax and Worf by telling them about what's going on. That is, until Odo can rescue them at Quark's urging by taking Loaxana on a walk. As they work their way down Diestein's corridors, Loaxana opens up about losing family members and, specifically, the pain of losing her young daughter Kestra. She can't bear the thought of a child being taken from her. They arrive at Odo's quarters, and Loaxana comes up with some excuse about her replicator being broken and how she needs to step into his place for a cup of tea. Odo, of course, accommodates her, and just then Luaxana experiences some pain when the baby kicks. She's got to get comfortable, on the floor, next to Odo. And when Odo feels the baby's kick, he's intrigued, delighted. Luaxana relaxes, leaning gently on Odo and resting her head on his shoulder as she falls asleep, and Odo shapes his arm into a blanket to cover her. Jake keeps his uh, date with Anaya, 
showing up at her quarters as requested. She's done some decorating, candles, silk curtains, and she starts asking him about his work and what he wants to write. She then presents him with a pen and paper, old school, but Jake is there to learn from someone who influenced the greats. She has him write to just keep going and write whatever comes to mind, and as he does, Anaya strokes the back of Jake's head and neck, mentioning something about a bioelectric field and stimulating the chakras. He writes, she encourages him, and a strange glowing wisp of energetic light transfers from Jake's head to her hands. Act 3. The next day, Loxana and Odo are having a lovely time. He's doing shapeshifter tricks, and they're laughing. Then the mood turns when word comes that Jael has arrived at DS9. In Odo's office, Jael says he's there to take his son when he's born, whether Loaxana likes it or not. But Odo's got a trick up his sleeve, being the strict adherent to law that he is. As long as he marries Loaxana, the marriage to Jael will be annulled, and custody of the child automatically goes to the mother's husband, whomever that may be. There's one catch, though. By law, Odo has to go through a ceremony where he publicly proclaims his love for Loaxana, and he has to be convincing, because Jael will be there, and if he's not convinced, then the whole thing is off. Jake is still at it, riding up a storm with Anaya, encouraging him. It's intense, though, because at one point he develops a nosebleed. He's a trooper, and just wants to work through it, while Onaya looks on with approval. Act 4. You are cordially invited to the nuptial ceremony of Odo and Loaxana Troy, with Troy's current husband, Jael, in attendance, just to make it really awkward. Take 1. Odo does kind of a perfunctory short speech about how he wants to marry Loaxana, because she's great. Nope. Definitely not good enough, so says Jael. Odo will have to try harder. Take two. Odo really steps it up and goes deep emotionally. He talks about how Luaxana sees him better than anyone else, that she was the first person to make him not feel alone, and he means it. The people gathered, including Jael, are moved and genuinely offer their congratulations. Even Jael, who knows he's been beat, graciously exits and only asks that Loaxana speak well of him to their son. The happy couple are happy, relieved, and Loaxana says she believed it herself, but they'll wait and tell everyone the truth about why they did this later. One person who missed the wedding is Jake Sisko. He's still just cranking away on that novel, even though Anaya is telling him that he needs to rest. He finally relents and says he'll go back to his quarters, but on the way he stumbles through the promenade until he passes out. In the infirmary, Dr. Bashir tells Captain Sisko that something unknown to him has stimulated Jake's brain functions in a way that he's never seen. Much more of it, and the outcome could have been much, much worse. Later, as a technician is attending to Jake, Anaya materializes in the room and knocks her out of the way, whispering to Jake that it's time they finish what they started. Act 5. So what was that? 
With Jake now missing, Chief O'Brien picks up some psionic energy residue in the infirmary on his tricorder. At least it's a lead they can use to try to find who or what made off with Jake. Onaya has hidden away in a service corridor with Jake, getting him to continue riding even while he is clearly not well, fatigued, and nose-bleeding again. He can barely hold his pen, and then just in the nick of time, Ben drops in with a phaser pulled. Onaya backs off, but says this is what she does, and she's done it a hundred times before to the greats, Catalyst, Keats, Tarbold. They reach their artistic potential, but then they die. They get immortality through their work, while she gets the energy she needs to survive, and then moves on to the next. Great story. Now get out before Captain Sisko shoots you. Too late! He does, but she's just turning into a ball of psionic energy herself, and escaping out into the cosmos. Time to return to the newlyweds. Loxana is happy to report to Odo that she has arranged transport for herself back to Beta Zed. Odo seems a little... Well, he's sad by this news. He'd like her to stick around. Problem is, Loxana is in love with Odo. And deep down, she knows he's not in love with her. They're not really, truly suited for each other, and their friendship is too important to her than to try to force a relationship. She has to leave, and she tells her husband goodbye. Jake is on the mend, at home in the Cisco quarters now, and Ben is reading the work he's done so far. It's a great piece, despite a few spelling errors. A new novel called Anselm. The End Well done, John. And I just want to make sure that, even though that we're separated, I would love to mm-hmm. hand you a handkerchief just in case you suffer any nosebleeds. <laughs> Thank you. For the yeah, hard work really, that, that, done. that took everything out of me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, psionically and and otherwise. Hey, oh man, they did one of my favorite Star Trek things, one of my favorite Star Trek tropes of all time. They named two real historical figures, Catalyst and Keats, and then the third one, boom, an alien from the future, Tarbold, who was name-checked by Gary Mitchell in Where No Man Has Gone Before. That never gets old to me. It never will. It's like in Star Trek too. Just like you know, you're going to be mentioned along the names of greats: Einstein, Newton, Surak. Yes, yes, I love it. It gives a lot Absolutely. of realism like, to the time. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you know, uh, uh, J. Paul Getty and and John Jacob Astor and Garlock from Zebulon Four. That that's the, you know that the greats. That's how we see it. Well done on dropping Garlock. Well, it's been a while. So. <laughs> You know, I, I thought there were some really nice, sweet moments in this episode. I really did love it when when Loxana was in Odo's quarters and she was just she's exhausted. She fell asleep, and Odo he smiled, looked down at her, and then gave her comfort in the form of literally a blanket and pillow. Yeah, it it, it was a very sweet moment, and it shows. You know, here we are, more than four seasons. We're we're approaching the the end of uh, season four how much Odo has developed, how much he's changed as a character. I, I, I think that's so cool to see this arc of, uh, and especially what we've learned of his background, um, not having a place and and not feeling at comfort 
among people and, and the abuse that he suffered through that. But in this relatively short time and with these influences, he has developed this really rich emotional life. It's cool to see in scenes like that. Yeah, and I also thought it was neat where it kind of, um, I wouldn't say bookends, but it, it does kind of uh, go back to when he was trapped with Waxana in the elevator and that's when their relationship was forged and she comforted him through that and now he's kind yes. of returning the favor. Yeah, yeah, showing a, a genuine kindness there. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. Um, speaking of throwbacks, Jake using paper and a pen. So I like that as a motif to bookend with the visitor that it was just so cool. It's, you know, especially learning that Ron Moore was thinking of the visitor when he dropped these plot lines into the story. I, I, I like it as, you know, a throwback to an older technology. It's like a photographer who still shoots on film because they can, because they like it. It, it, it gives them some other layer of appreciation with, with their artwork. And also just cool to have that call back to Anselm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought very nicely done all around. So as, a, as an illustrator, I, I draw and write on vellum. And let me tell you something. This one thing that I would love to have seen in this episode is if Jake or if, if Anaya like handed him like there's a traditional powder called pounce. Oh, and after he was uh-huh. done writing, if he like shook some on the paper, because let me tell you something, vellum does not dry quickly. <laughs> and the way that he was writing at that speed, if he was writing, that ink would have stayed wet for minutes, minutes. Yeah. You know, that that's so funny that you bring that. I, I didn't think of that as being a thing that you could or would get now but uh, of course i just remember being about i don't know 10 or 11 years old and being at uh, historic williamsburg uh, i love that place mm-hmm. and showing you know showing how people would write in the 18th century and you had a little like a little shaker it's like a like a large salt shaker mm-hmm. next to your desk and you you'd use that to set the ink yep exactly so and one of the neat things is with vellum, the ink stays on top because vellum's very non-porous, but just a, a side. When you look at historical documents, the reason why ink is so fat, when the lines are written with such a, um, a very specifically thin instrument like a crow quill or a razor, it's because mm. of your blotting the ink to dry it quickly so it doesn't smear. Fascinating. Ink talk with ink Norman Lau. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, I love when you brought up in trivia about uh, Meg Foster's very distinctive eyes, because I think that really lends into her character. And this is the first time that I've seen this episode in its entirety ever, because I haven't watched any mm. of Deep Space Nine. And as soon as she walked yeah. through that airlock, I was like, that's Meg Foster. Yeah. And if it's not Meg Foster, that is a makeup effect looking like Meg Foster, (laughs) you know? I mean, and and it's interesting because when you look her up, as I did to put together trivia, you know, that's just something that always shows up with her bio. It's just like Meg Foster has done all of this work. And by the way, her signature is just her very unique, striking eyes. And I remember being, you know, whatever, 13, 14, when I saw They Live for the first time and just think, what a fascinating, unique look for this woman and that that has become her thing it's become her trademark mm-hmm. for sure we're talking about jake writing on vellum i i do still i i kind of cringe at him using the stylus on the pad at, because he's doing what it's just a pointing tool at this point yeah. i mean the, it's a pretty bad close-up on that pad anyway because you can tell they literally just ran off like a paper print and stuck it on there 
And then you have this, I mean, it's a pretty cool looking stylus. I, I wish they'd make one for an iPad now, but you just hear it beeping and he's just sort of running it across the screen. Like it's a totally unnecessary close up for absolutely nothing happening on the screen at that point. Well, do you think that they actually ever went in and remastered Deep Space Nine that, say, Mike and Denise Okuda would flag scenes like this to insert some type of, like, digital effect where it would look like an interactive pad? Because I'm sure back in, like, the mid-'90s when the prop department was making these items, especially all the pads, they weren't counting on people freeze-framing and dissecting and and pouring over the minutia right. of why the pad looks like this when it's supposed to be interactive in the 24th century. Yeah. No, of course. And, and that is the kind of thing that they corrected with Next Gen for sure. And you can just hear it. You know, Not that it's uh, an afterthought, but in my head, it's like, okay, well, we have this shot. Uh, Jake's working on a pad. Okay, well, we're going to do it in close-up. Okay, well, give him a, give him a prop. I, I, I don't know, a, a, a space pen. Make, make it spacey. Just, you know, give him a thing. <laughs> make it spacey? Make it spacey. That's, that's how they did all of Buck Rogers. Come on. Cover it with tinfoil. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> how do you like your quasi-futuristic pad, Mr. Cisco? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's funny as... We've, we spent a lot of time in the last couple of episodes talking about how serious the nature of that wharf has become. But let me tell you something. There is no one better in any episode of Star Trek that throws one-liners out the way Michael Dorn does as Worf. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Right? When, when, yes. um, when the chief uh, was, you know, when he said that Keiko's, you know, giving birth and, you know, Worf's walking mm -hmm. through the bar and he goes, now? <laughs> I mean, that just levels the episode. <laughs> yeah, just levels right. the episode. And in this episode, yes. when, you know, when, uh, when Odo comes in to, to basically save, like, the, the party over at Quark's from that, that just entire, very uh, depressing soliloquy that she has, you know, uh, Odo says, uh, actually I actually have some free time, and I was wondering if you'd like to take a walk. And Worf says, I would. Because he just wanted to get <laughs> out of there. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. And it just, uh, he just owns that scene with one line. It's amazing. It's perfect. Absolute perfection. I liked the mention of Kestra here. I did not love the TNG episode Dark Page, where we learn that, uh, that Loxana had another child, you know, uh, Deanna Troy's late sister who, who died at the lake when she was like six or seven years old. Um, I didn't love that episode. And I'll, I'll fast forward in our talk today enough to say, I don't really love this episode. But, 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 <laughs> before we get to that, at least in this case, Kestra was kind of just a curveball presented late in the game with TNG. That's probably why I was not crazy about that. But at least here, with a bit of time distance removed... It's a reference that makes sense. It's a reference that just gives a little more continuity and texture to things going on. Because otherwise, it just feels like, oh, okay, we're, we're marking time until we get to the end of TNG. Now here's a huge character reveal. Here's this big thing. And we'll never speak of it again. But now they do. And it's done in a way that gives a little bit of weight. So I'm, I'm cool with that. And not to jump the timeline, but we do again. Am I allowed to yes. jump the timeline, or am I not allowed to jump oh, the timeline? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we don't always, but uh, except for when we do, totally. 
Yeah. yeah. And we're going to totally, because I think mean, it's relevant, but because, yeah. and she's also one of my favorite characters from Picard, but we also have mention of Kestra again yeah. in Picard as being uh, the surviving daughter of Will Riker right. and Deanna Troy. I, very well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love seeing Michael Ansara in any role. I don't care if he's behind oh, yeah. Klingon makeup or not. There's just something about him. He's just so, oh, what's the word? Imposing as a presence. Yeah. He just, when he walks on set and as soon as you hear his voice, you're terrified in a way. And Yeah, right. Well, he, he's got that great voice yeah. and he's just, his eyes, you, you can just see he's completely engaged in the scene. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of uh, charisma on the screen. And you can see as, as the character of JL how he would be this overbearing, dominating force in, in Luxana's life that, sure, they fell in love, and then all of a sudden things went sideways, and they kind of figured out how their relationship would go from there. It's almost yeah. kind of like an, um, in a mafia husband and wife situation kind of way. You know, it's right. like, oh, you're in the mob? That's nice. Oh, you're in the mob. Oh. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, can't you give me a straight answer anymore? Was it a boy? <laughs> I do like Odo's wedding outfit. It's somewhere across between, you know, the Martian Chronicles TV miniseries and Jor-El from Superman the movie. Definitely a lot of textures going on there. Very cool, kind of bright, you know, bluish white. Very cool. One thing I want to bring up about like the end of the show, uh, I think Ben needs to have a little deeper conversation with Jake. And, and I want to know what that conversation was like. I mean, it's it's got to start somewhere along the lines of like, uh, you know, Jake, uh, next time you want me to leave so you can spend time with a woman, A, tell the truth, and B, let me meet her first. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that's perfectly fair for a father <laughs> to ask. Yeah. And going back to the, uh, there's a, obviously um, a little bit of a bookend here from the visitor with Jake putting down that copy of Anselm and then having that wonderful music cue that ties all the way back to that episode. I thought this actually, for, for some of the issues that we'll talk about with this episode, I think that the ending of this episode was really handled quite nicely. Totally agree. They found those right notes. Time for John and Norman to muse about the muse. We'll find our muse in a moment. But first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. I have been using ExpressVPN for quite a while now. And it's always my pleasure to be able to talk about it with uh, with you who's listening to me. I've got it installed on all of my devices. And honestly... I love it. I'm a big fan of it. And and for many, many reasons. I mean, first and foremost, it ensures me privacy and security when I'm browsing for pleasure, sure, but also for important business. You know, we're all working at home more often now these days. And not only is it work that I'm concerned about, but it's all the details of my life, like banking, placing online orders, all of these things where I want to make absolutely sure that my data is secure and anonymous when I'm browsing. And ExpressVPN does that by encrypting my data and hiding my public IP address. Now, the other thing that I love about ExpressVPN is the express part. There are a lot of VPNs that can actually make your speed take a nosedive while you're using it. ExpressVPN does not. 
I use it when I'm streaming movies, listening to music, really doing anything, video calls, as I'm doing right now. They're all working under ExpressVPN. And other VPNs typically can't handle those complex tasks without sacrificing speed. And more important than anything, protecting yourself with ExpressVPN is very inexpensive. It costs less than $7 a month. It even comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So wherever I'm working, if I want to ensure that my information is private and secure, ExpressVPN protects my connections and it speeds that impress me every time. You know, John, you're absolutely right, especially in today's day and age where a lot of us are working from home. We need to make sure that our online security is safe and is consistent. And one of the things that I told you earlier uh, when we were talking about technology off the show, I just invested in a new phone. I've uploaded my ExpressVPN. I even ran some speed tests on it as I was downloading some information. And you're right, there is no loss of speed during the connectivity of that. So that's really important to me, especially when we're working with big files and trying to make sure that we're getting our work done on time as we're working from home. So ExpressVPN has been really fantastic for me as well. So protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Norman, this week we've got a very clear A plot and a B plot. And um, I did find it interesting that they switched those. <laughs> Originally, this was Majel's story about Loaxana, and then they said, well, we're going to make that the B plot. So let's start with that A plot. I, I-, I want to start with the uh, the Jake Sisko story here. I- I've got, you know, my impressions have to do with uh, a little bit with art and and the pursuit of art and maybe the appropriateness or inappropriateness of what's going on here. But I, I want your take first and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. Well, I mean, it is a little bit tropish when I saw it. I, I jokingly have referenced a movie from the 1980s called life force. And that's mm-hmm. where a, a vampiric entity feeds on life energy. And that's, again, it's very typical science fiction uh, type of trope. And it wasn't really yeah. that different here. And the thing is, is that you can you can look at it from the standpoint of Jake being a very virginal type of character. And he's young, he's talented, he has a lot of energy, and this older, seductive, alluring, attractive woman kind of just sidles up to him and says, I can help you, I can mentor you through this. And it's a little on the seductive but creepy side and i don't know i mean if i were jake i'd be like okay this is interesting but there would be a little bit of a red flag that would pop up in the back of my subconscious saying what's this all about yeah that that would have to be there for sure Uh, unless there's some other for some other sway that she has over him. I mean, if there is some sort of a, a psychic lure that she's laying there. But it, yeah, there, there is something about it that, that the rational mind has to kind of kick in at some point and say, um, why, why, why is this happening? And with me specifically. By the way, since you mentioned uh, vampires and um, you, you didn't 
specifically say the combination of words that I was looking for, so I just need to say it. Uh, Space vampire, uh, of course, from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, if we're going to talk about space vampire, because really, they did what you have to do in any great science fiction show, which is you take a thing like a vampire and you put the word space in front of it to indicate Mm -hmm. that this is the sci-fi version of that thing. Hence, space vampire. And we cannot forget the Vorvan and his seduction of Wilma Deering. So, or or conversely, uh, Wilma Deering turning into a space vampire. Nobody, nobody forget that. And those eyebrows. No one can forget those eyebrows either. Uh, but And this is why John Champion is my muse in science fiction, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, you know, there are some things that she says that I, I think, you know, look, it's not too deep here. It's very clear um, this sort of seduction that she has for him and just the, these lines that she has, like, isn't that what an artist wants to be remembered? Well, yeah. I mean, he, he had to think about it for two seconds, but, but sure. And, and there is, I think a universal truth to that, that people create art because they feel like they are compelled to express themselves through that art, but it is in this way, this kind of bid for immortality, that thing, that object, that, that film, that book, that sculpture, that painting that will be here after I'm gone. And whoever sees that or experiences that or reads that after I'm gone, they get a sense of part of me because I'm the one who created it. So I, you know, it's just a very clear, obvious thing, but why not put it into the show? I also like that there was a little bit of an exploration of this through line of artists who lived a short but productive life, as if the creative process sort of makes you burn out. Mm-hmm. And and it is a popular trope, but it is a trope for a reason because, well, we see it very often. You know, she name checks Keats. She name checks Catalyst. They could have just kept going up through music stars of the 20th century. I mean, you could just keep going on and on. And a, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, if you wanted to stick with writers. I mean, the names come very easily because we all know those stories about these people who burn bright for a short time. And then it's like they stuffed out as if being that creative drives you to an early grave. I don't think that's necessarily true. But we certainly see a lot of that. No, it's interesting that you Um, say that. Uh, I just wanted to bring up one of my other favorite uh, fandoms called Highlander. And there was an episode of Highlander I was just thinking about recently when I watched this episode called Timeless. And in that, one of the immortals in that episode kills a potential immortal because he wants to preserve her at the peak of her artistic genius. Because he has lived a life that's so long that he's seen so many artists burn out or succumb to some type of um, some type of demise. Say he said that mm-hmm. you know Janis Joplin or uh, Jimi Hendrix or these type of artists they are all young. They all died in their mid thirties before that they were their genius was preserved. So in that sense, that particular immortal like. Anaya was trying to do something in this episode that 
furthered and fostered along somebody else's genius to the point where they robbed them of that genius. Because once she became immortal, she lost the passion for life. And thusly, the passion for life is what gives these artists that drive to become great. And without the fear of their mortality, they don't really have the inspiration to create passion, the passion of their art. Right. Uh, see that that's that those things are are tied together our creative expression and our sense of our own mortality mm-hmm. that's that's fascinating now i had read uh somewhere that they based this part of the story around an irish folktale i was not familiar with that folktale um but as i watched this i kept thinking of faust i mean it's this morality tale writ large and you know, sort of the messages there. There's no shortcuts to accomplishment, and don't trade your life for art. Don't trade your soul for the short-term gain. Um, and it's this warning about giving into temptation. It, it's not necessarily sexual, but she is seductive in this way that I, I kind of described Garrick that way uh, at first. That it wasn't necessarily about a sexual seduction. He was just a seductive guy, just dragging the people in around him to to be able to kind of get under their skin and uh, uh, force himself uh, on them. Now, I there is a part of me, though, that I, I still really wonder about the producers and writers constantly putting Jake with older women. I mean, can, can we just please let him spend some time with a woman who's age appropriate? You know, they, they sort of, they turn the thing with the Dabo girl into a joke. And even then, and we made a point on uh, mission log at the time saying, you know, reverse the roles, reverse the sexes and make it a, 25 year old man 24 25 with a 16 year old girl there's no way that would have been considered appropriate at all and in this case here's jake 17 and here's yeah i get it's a sci-fi character and and she is an entity that is hundreds well thousands of years old at this point but if we're going to go that route and make it this mildly physical, like, is she coming on to him or not? Can, can, can we maybe just not? <laughs> yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I think the biggest issue uh, with, with that part of the storyline was there wasn't really any clock to Jake's decision making. There wasn't any risk really to yeah. him like he didn't choose like okay so this is what i would like to have, have seen and i love the fact that you brought up the faustian mythology because i i came to that same conclusion too where you mm-hmm. don't trade you know uh, you don't trade your soul for your art but in this sense what i like what i'd like to have seen was anaya pushing him towards kind of like this manufactured goal this manufactured timetable of if he doesn't complete his work then something catastrophic would happen. Therefore, he has to go and seek her out in order to keep pushing that clock forward. Say he was looking for her inspiration so that he would turn in a story on a deadline that would get into some type of competition that would raise his status as a writer, as a young writer, and defeat his competition. There's no stake involved for him right there's no reason for him to go seek her out like okay she's alluring she's mysterious but is that enough to be able just to say no dad i'm gonna ditch out on this plan that i made for us to go out and spend time together as a family just because 
Yeah. You know, there's no stake. Yeah. Like if there was like yeah. something where, where Benjamin said, oh, I see, you really wanted to win that competition. You wanted to prove to everybody that you had some type of worth, that you wanted to use that worth in order to bolster your own self-confidence and your own self-worth amongst your peers as writers. I get that. You know, we're, we're all like that. We all want to have that kind of acclamation and accreditation to our craft. But there was nothing like that. Right. And I think that would have added something valuable um, for him to put at stake. See, you're fixing it already. <laughs> oh, I have my writer's hat on. I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have my no. Robin Masters writer hat on. Yes, yeah. yes, you do. <laughs> hey, uh, so let's talk about the, the B plot here, the, the Waxana plot line. Um, so they do this with Waxana. And, and when I say they, I mean all the way back to uh, Next Gen when we first got introduced to Waxana, trying to sort of squeeze her into what feels to me like some sort of 17th century commedia dell'arte sex farce it's a husband and a lover and an unrequited love and now a baby and i just feel like every time they do this they burn every bit of goodwill that they establish when they actually do something thoughtful and emotional and deep with waxana that's that's not just playing for cheap sympathy. And I know that there are a lot of Loxana fans out there, a lot of Majel fans out there, of which I am one. And, and I don't think that Loxana is irredeemable, but I feel like they keep fumbling the ball when they have her on, when they're given this opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's why I brought up that scene where, where she and Odo connected in the elevator or in the turbo lift, because that was a moment for Loxana and a fantastic acting moment for Majel where she really did drop kind of like the pretense of who Waxana Troy is and what she's expected to be. And she becomes that person. She exposes who her real nature is. And I thought that was beautiful. And I wanted to see that one more time here, instead of playing it to the comedic um, conclusion where she mm -hmm. usually is. And I think we got a little bit of that when she she came to the resolution that what she's doing to Odo is kind of what Jayal did to her. Like, yeah. they, they found this relationship, but in the end, there was more of a possessive nature of the relationship, and she's possessive of Odo's affections because those are genuine and true affections that he can't reciprocate in kind or in total because of how he feels about Kira. So there's no real reason for her to keep him as that possession at arm's length, knowing that she'll always be able to go there uh, for a for a quick fix for yeah. her affections, and yeah. I, I think that in in a way that's that's very similar to kind of like Jake and Onaya trying to I don't know trying to make a similarity between these two relationships that they both are feeding off of each other for completely similar reasons. Onaya needs energy from Jake because Jake is this um, innocent. Well, so is Odo, yeah. and Loxana yeah. is feeding off of that innocent true, pure affection for her because she needs it. Not necessarily Odo has to give it to her because she needs it. It's just because that's who Odo is. That's the same way with Jake. Jake's just a good, inspired, energetic young writer. And he's not necessarily giving her that because she wants it. He just is. And she's feeding off of that. And I think that you can draw a parallel there. Uh, I don't think I'm stretching that at all. I think you can actually find a really good parallel there. 
Yeah, no, I mean, look, for, for an actor thing, for a writer thing, going into a scene, trying to understand what the objective is, what, what it is you're getting out of that other person, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know. I think what's tragic and terrible about Loaxana and Odo is that there is a desire there for a relationship that is not going to happen. And literally culminating with a marriage in this, even though it's a marriage for convenience and they understand that, but still, you know, without going into anything with full disclosure of expectations, morals, beliefs, etc. Like, this is how Loaxana keeps getting into trouble over and over and over again. And she does have this moment of clarity saying, you know, basically, I allowed myself to get into a rebound to hide my hurt feelings or to to soothe my hurt feelings don't do that <laughs> i i am making mistakes so at least at least she has that amount of clarity about what she's doing but still acting out inappropriately join us after the show for a panel discussion on dating and relationship advice with special guests jake cisco and mrs troy or maybe skip that Well, after this fabulous inspirational chat, of which I have found so many ways to be inspired, and I'm sure that John has drawn energy off of that inspiration, I have to ask, does this episode hold up for you, John? Does it inspire you? Or did it inspire you? No. Okay, thanks, folks, for joining us here on Mission Log. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, I, I've said before on the show how... When I put together my notes, when I put together trivia, I save reading anybody else's impression of the show until after I've gotten everything out. So that's what I did. I, I got down my notes. I got down the trivia. I got everything else set. Then I went back to read what the people who worked on this show thought about it. And I'm in good company. They didn't like it either. And I feel bad because... It, it, it sticks to that rule that nobody sets out to make a bad show. And even if, look, you know, Majel's not a writer, but she's Gene Roddenberry's wife, and she has a working relationship with all the people on Star Trek at any given time. For her to come in with a pitch that might be something fun and light to do, cool. More power to her. And we've seen people like Ron and Renee and Ira and everybody else knock out a script that is heavy drama or comedy or relationship-based or whatever and, and do perfectly well with it. This happens to be one of those where it didn't work. It, it simply didn't. They, they were not able to find... They did find moments. There are, I think you pointed out very well the moments that actually work here. But none of that actually gelled into a story that I can walk away with uh, actually caring about what happened. It's relatively consequence-free, so I, I can't get behind this one. It just doesn't work. I mean, I know they tried, but even, they, even the people who worked on it say we tried, but we didn't succeed. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, can, can you bring anything else to that? Not really. No, I understand where you're coming from with this. And when I was watching it, I, I watch almost every episode with uh, the kind of filter of trying to find the deeper meanings of it. And 
there are a couple of instances where I was like, okay, I, I see where the writers are trying to put together some type of stronger, um, you know, stronger lesson to be learned here. But overall, though, it's just not a very cohesive episode when it comes to that. And therefore, if you don't have a cohesive moral meaning or message that is the through line or the thread of an episode, it's really hard to kind of justify making it so. <laughs> yeah. If you pardon the pun. Yeah. <laughs> You're excused. What about messages, though? Because, I mean, I, look, I, I can look at this just very simply and say, I, I can take our major characters and say, don't do what they did. You know, don't do what Loaxana did. Don't don't rebound. And if and when you do, don't do something stupid without spelling out your expectations and, and your needs and making sure that you're on the same page. Uh, don't do what Jake did. Uh, something quite that impulsive and lie <laughs> about why you're staying behind and allow yourself to be taken into something that you're a little uneasy about. Even if the person at the other end is saying, oh, yeah, don't, don't worry. Don't, don't be uneasy. Yeah, that's probably the time that you should be. And uh, don't do what Benjamin Sisko did, which is to say, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, just uh, stay here. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, you know, we've seen Ben Sisko lay down the law before. I would like for him to at least uh, put up a little more of a fight here. Um, not Not to the extent of alienating his kid, but, you know. He's also got the responsibility of watching after his kid. So um, that's that's really about all I can find there. What about well, may, you? Maybe he should have taken a page from your uh, freshly inked vellum notes and said to Jake, what is it with you and older women? Because See? it's obviously not working. <laughs> no good will come from this at all. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there is one thing, though. There is a message to be learned from Odo. So coming from understanding Odo's feelings and being in Odo's position, sometimes even though you want to give somebody that supportive shoulder and lend that ear, you can't fall into the trap every single time of appropriating their feelings for your needs and putting their needs before everything that that matters to you which are your feelings and i saw that in this episode again where i don't think that loxana manipulated him to do it it's just that odo is now so much more in touch with who he is emotionally and what he needs and desires that he doesn't need to fall back on being friend zoned and that's a lot on his doing not so much on her doing, and he needs to grow from that. We've seen that hmm. too many times and too recently for him not to learn from those experiences. So, Odo, do yourself a favor, lace up and sprint out of the friend zone. I like that advice for Odo. I like it a lot. So we know that the guy has an emotional life, and damn it, I want to see him live it. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry, our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Your Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam! Shabam! <laughs>
And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, for the cause. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. In the end, did Jake muse about the musings of his muse? Also, does anyone know how to hire a muse for a computer? I might be in the market. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.